One of the things I've always uh, found interesting is Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year. I, I find this to be fascinating because in many ways it's a commentary about who we are as a society, but it's also interesting to see how new words kind of come into our vocabulary or maybe even old words recycled and used in new ways. So for example, last year's Word of the Year was the word toxic. I mean, that's a word that we've used before, but all of a sudden it was, it was found in news commentaries and around uh, watering holes, and this word toxic became popular again. A couple years before that, there was this word post-truth. It kind of came into popularity as, as people talked about fake news and, and fake stories, and you couldn't believe anything that you read anymore. And so it seemed to communicate that we just live in a time of post-truth. No one cares about the truth. Uh, there's that word in 2013 that came to popularity called selfie. This is a word used to describe uh, this phenomenon of, of ourselves taking pictures of ourselves in, in various locations and posting it to social media. So that was a word that we really hadn't used before but came into popularity. And probably my all-time favorite was not actually a word at all. It was an emoji. It was this emoji that we used in typing out uh, responses to friends or putting in emails and it was called Tears of Joy. It's this picture, and this is probably the one I use the most, uh, with this guy laughing with tears coming out of his eyes. And so when emojis first came around, I was like, this is really silly. But like, I use them all the time now, so I don't know about you. There was a word that emerged in the popular vocabulary about a decade ago. And it's the word unfriend. Oxford Dictionary, in its in its recognition of search engine information and just feedback from the culture, decided to highlight this word unfriend because of its sudden popularity. Now, you may be familiar with this word, you may not. Uh, they define it as a verb. It's, it means to remove someone as a quote-unquote friend from a social networking site such as, such as Facebook. And the idea of becoming a friend or, or losing a friend had, had been around for a long time. But all of a sudden, this was being spoken of all the time. It was easy as, as just a click. And so while this was a, a new word, the concept of unfriending people has been around with us for a long, long time, hasn't it? All of us know, to some degree or another, the pain of, of being on the outside and, and wanting in. We know what it's like to, to be shunned by the cool kids, Almost all of us know the pain of how friendship can be weaponized. And, and if truth be known, we want to live in a world that's different than that. And one of the interesting things is that when you look at the life of Jesus and the historical accounts that document his life, Jesus friended all kinds of people. And, and he set a different kind of tone for this world than, than what we know naturally. Uh, many of us in this church community here are reading a book by Scott Sauls this summer called Befriend. And in the introduction, he has a quote by another writer named Ann Voskamp that, that really kind of arrested me and, and caused me to stop and ponder. And she said, the tone of our world wounds us in a thousand ways. That's, that's, that's almost a crazy way of putting it. But what a beautiful way of putting something so tragic. The tone of our world wounds us in a thousand ways. And as I thought about that, I said, yes, that's so true. Just, it, it seems like it's, it's even coming more that way than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And so as, as you look at the life of Jesus, you saw a person who set a different kind of tone. He befriended people 
And not only did he befriend people, but he befriended the kinds of people that everyone else was really quick to unfriend. The outcasts, the misfits, the, the losers. Take, for example, this one little snapshot of the life of Jesus given to us by Luke, the physician. He said, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They saw Jesus hanging around with the wrong kinds of people and it caused them to mutter, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How dare he? I don't know about you, but I find that to be one of the most beautiful descriptions of Jesus found anywhere in the Gospels. And so we're going to look at the implications of this welcome that Jesus extends. And we're going to call our study today, Welcome One Another. How should the good news of the welcome of Jesus impact our lives and then overflow our lives into the lives of other people. And so if you are here today and you identify as a follower of Jesus, you're going to be reminded of how God in Christ has welcomed you. And he intends for that same welcome to overspill your life into the lives of others. And if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Christ, maybe you're just uh, here and you're investigating and just trying to get uh, your bearings about what, who this person Jesus is and what he taught. First of all, let me just say I'm glad to have you here. But one of the things you're going to learn is you kind of listen in on this conversation is that before God wants, to do any, wants you to do anything for him, he, he wants you to receive the welcome that he extends to you. And he's going to see that, you're going to see rather, um, that, that following Jesus is an apprenticeship in a new way of being human, one that, that overflows and welcome to other people. And so we're going to be in the book of Romans today, Romans chapter 15, and this is how the Apostle Paul writes to these early followers of Jesus, these early communities of Jesus. And he says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant to you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to understand this passage and the importance of it, we need to understand something of the context of what's going on here. Paul is writing his magnum opus about the Christian faith. He is describing how um, all of us have turned away from God. That because of our, our self-centeredness, uh, we've caused all kinds of harm in this world. The tone we set in this world is, is kind of bad, to use Van Voskamp's uh, language there. But God has moved toward us in the person of Jesus Christ. He, he accomplished redemption for people like you and me so that the door of relationship to God might be open to each and every one of us. And we're taught that when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we're given his spirit, his, his animating energy within each of us that causes us to live in a new way and to follow Jesus in a new way of being human. And that is meant to not just be a private thing that we experience, but something that changes us from the inside out. And so Paul, in describing that great good news of Jesus, has a climax in verse 12 where he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, he says, look, if you get a hold of the good news of Jesus, or rather if it gets a hold of you and you begin to understand the mercy of God, then the appropriate response is to say, Lord, use me and use my life in any way that you choose. 
And Paul says when you do that, that's actually an act of worship. This is a, a spiritual service we can offer to the Lord. And then he says this, do not be conformed to this world. Uh, one commentator put it like this, do not be squeezed into the world's mold. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he says here, basically, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold in the, in the way that it does things, in the way it divides people up, in the tone that it sets. But be renewed in your minds. That is, let the gospel of Jesus Christ impact you. Let his story become your story so that you may actually figure out the way that God wants us to be in this world. And he says, when you figure that out, it's good and acceptable and perfect. So, so Paul's writing to a group of followers of Jesus in Rome. And we got to understand the context of that. This wasn't just a group of like-minded people. It was anything but that. These were Jews and Romans, slave and free, rich and poor, men and women, young and old, all gathering together to learn more about the Lord Jesus Christ and to form this community of faith. And so there's all kinds of reasons why they ought to be divided. But they find themselves responding to Jesus and forming a new family of faith. And so Paul gives further instructions about how they ought to live. He says, love one another with a brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. A little bit later, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Chapter 13, owe no one anything except to love one another for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. And in chapter 15, he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. In other words, when you come together as a community of faith that has so many natural, uh, how should I put this? So many ways in which we are not alike, all of a sudden we're put together and what unites us together is the gospel of Jesus. Then let's live like Jesus. For Jesus did not live to please himself. In other words, he wasn't self-centered, but he was other-centered. And so let's think about how we, we can please one another and, and to serve one another. And so this is where we come to chapter 15, verse 5, where he says, live with such, in, in such a harmony with one another. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. And boy, they needed it. For the first time, a new social experiment was happening. You had Jews hanging out with non-Jews. You had those who were free hanging out with slaves. You had men and women interacting in new and wholesome ways. You had the rich eating with the poor. And the world hadn't seen anything like this. And so Paul says, live with one another in such a way that you live in harmony with one another. And so that phrase, to live in harmony, is, is translated by another translation of the scripture, that God would give you a spirit of unity. It's basically a call to adopt a specific mindset. That is, if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to adopt this mindset, a way of being with one another that informs our life together. And he says the reason we need to do that is that together, there's something that happens when we're together that doesn't happen when we're apart. That when we come together across all these natural divisions around the gospel of Jesus, together with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's thinking is this. If you've been impacted in any way by the gospel of Jesus and you're wanting to apprentice with him in a new way of being human, then that new way 
is a way of being life, uh, doing life together that's across all kinds of boundaries. So live together in harmony so that when you're together, what you do together, your life together, speaks volumes. It actually brings glory to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, people on the outside should be looking in going, this is crazy. I've never seen anything like this. People who have nothing in common with one another all of a sudden are loving one another and living in harmony with one another. And so therefore, Paul says in the next verse, therefore. And if you were to think, okay, how is Paul going to follow this up? Or what would I write if I was going to be writing these early communities of Jesus on how they ought to live? He says, therefore, welcome one another. And you go, hmm, that seems kind of easy. Maybe even a, a little bit anticlimactic. <laughs> welcome one another. But Paul knows in many ways, this new way of being human is, is difficult. And so God has to give us encouragement and endurance to do so. And he says here, look, the end game in many ways is that we welcome one another. We don't let those natural divisions or reasons why we shouldn't be friends get in the way. We actually begin to welcome one another. And that word welcome in the original language means to take to oneself, to take as a companion or an associate, to receive kindly or hospitably to admit into one's society and friendship, or to treat with kindness. This is the range of meaning that this word can take on here. So he says, welcome one another. This group that had so many natural divisions take on a certain way of being together that is new because of Jesus. In fact, Paul would say this to another group of Christians living in Galatia. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ which is an interesting way of putting things, isn't it? How do you put on somebody? He's saying, basically, look, the gospel of Jesus should impact you in such a way that you begin to be like him, that his life overflows you so that you are intentionally trying to live like Jesus lived in this world. And he says, for there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what is Paul saying here? I mean, we don't stop being male or female and our, our position in life doesn't change just when we walk to, through the doors of a community of faith. He's saying, basically, look, all those things that divide people on the outside don't matter in here. If you've been baptized into Christ, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have put him on. And his new way of being human is what defines us now. And so Paul says, back in Romans 15, to not only welcome one another, he says, therefore, welcome one another. But he tells us how to do it. As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, that's huge, isn't it? How has Christ Jesus welcomed you? Well, the good news of the gospel of Jesus tells us that he welcomes us with open arms. He doesn't make us change our life, reform our life, do a bunch of good works to make ourselves acceptable to him. He simply says, come to me just as you are. And so we come to him. And that's perhaps why, at least in the Western church, one of the, the classic hymns that so many people love is this hymn called Just As I Am. Charlotte Elliott wrote these words, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. She's putting into words here the response that we ought to have to the good news of Jesus. When we see that he is the Lamb of God, that is, he took our sins upon himself, 
and he, he simply invites us to come to him, our response should be simply that we come to him. That's how we come. And so Jesus' family is a grace-formed family. The, the outside world may divide everyone up according to certain classifications, but that's not the way it's supposed to be within the community of faith. The tone of the world out there might wound us in a thousand ways, but our way of being human with one another ought to heal us in a thousand ways. And that begins, Paul says, when we welcome one another. The tone we set with our lives and together as a community of faith ought to be radically different. Now, my friends, I don't know about your experience, but just like in Jesus' day, there are holier-than-thou kinds of folks who welcome other people as long as you become like them. In other words, the people who wounded in a thousand ways in Jesus' time said basically, look, if you, if you get your act together, if you look like us, if you vote like us, if you, if you cheer for the right teams like us, if you come from the same socioeconomic realm as we do, if your skin color is the same as ours, if your ethnicity is the same as ours, then we will welcome you. But if not, we don't welcome you. And so use Paul's words. When that happens, their lives do not glorify God. And the reason is because they're, they're too preoccupied with glorifying themselves. And so let me bottom line this for us, my friends. We graciously welcome one another because Christ has graciously welcomed us. We graciously welcome one another because Christ has graciously welcomed us. Now that seems fundamental and easy, doesn't it? That seems like the easiest thing. Okay, we can move on. We got this, right? <laughs> the thinking seems to be, according to Paul here, that if we have experienced the grace of God that leads us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice where we say to God, Lord, use my life in any way that you choose. And if our minds are being renewed to live like Jesus in this world, then the way that should work itself out in very practical ways is we begin to welcome one another. And not because we look like each other, vote like each other, cheer for the same team as each other, have the same income, retirement plan, read the same authors, whatever. But because God in Christ has welcomed us. So my friends, I want us to lean in together as we think about a few ways to apply this. And, and first of all, I want us to ask some hard questions, all right? We want you to be encouraged at church, but we also want you to be challenged as well, which is what we would expect when we come seeking how God wants us to live. So I want us to ask some hard questions of ourselves. And so the first one is this. Are you a welcoming person? Ask yourself this question. Am I a welcoming person? You might think, well, yeah, I welcome folks. I say hi to people. I get together with my friends from time to time. Are you a welcoming person? Would other people say that you're a welcoming person? How would you know if you're a welcoming person? Lean in, my friends, on this. How do you know that you're a welcoming person? The answer is written all over your face. Your face communicates volumes whether you know it or not. I, I was really slow to begin to learn this, but I recall two times in my life where this truth came and was 
put basically front center stage for me. One time was when I was a younger Christian and I was reading uh, Chuck Swindoll's book, The Grace Awakening. He's a pastor and author and he's on the radio and, and lots of people have known him. But in this book, The Grace Awakening, he's talking about how the gospel of Jesus should transform us and it should transform our countenance. What's written all over our face? And he used an illustration from the life of President Thomas Jefferson that, that really brought this home to me. Listen to what he said. He said, during Thomas Jefferson's presidency, he and a group of travelers were crossing a river that had overflowed its banks. Each man crossed on horseback, fighting for his life. A lone traveler watched the group traverse the treacherous river and then asked President Jefferson to take him across. The president agreed without hesitation, and the man climbed on, and the two made it safely to the other side of the river, where someone asked this traveler, why did you select the president to ask this favor? The man was shocked, admitting he had no idea that it was the president of the United States that had carried him safely across the river. All I know, he said, is that on some of your faces was written the answer no, and on some of them, was the answer yes. His was a yes face. Oh, I read that. I'm, I was so convicted. I'm like, I, I just go through life with a no face. <laughs> Why is that? The simple truth is your heart is reflected in your face. Your, your basic disposition and your stance with this world is written all over your face. The second time this came home to me was when we lived in Peru and we had a mission team down that was helping us and it was a bunch of college students from the University of Alabama so I already had issues to begin with. Apologies to Bama fans here. I'm just joking. Uh, but we had been working uh, basically from the time we got up to the time we went to bed and I got up early the next morning. It was my responsibility to go get them from the hotel and take them to the place where we were going to be working that day and, and I remember just being grumpy. I didn't sleep well that night and I was tired of talking about Alabama football, and I was on my way there, and, and I rounded this corner, and, and just in front of me was a young man who was crippled. With great difficulty, he, he shuffled himself along the path, and he was coming toward me, and, and I first noticed that he was having great difficulty walking, but then I looked at his face, and I kid you not, my friends, this fellow had a smile that was a mile wide. I remember just being kind of shocked by it because I was grumpy that morning and he was smiling and why would he be smiling? He's having such difficulty walking. But his face radiated kindness and a warmth and a welcome to me as our eyes met. And I, I, I saw his eyes and I, I kind of gave a half smile and, and then diverted my eyes and, and walked away. And as I was, I was walking past him and continuing on my day, I was thinking, why am I so grumpy? Why do I have a no face? And what's going on in this man's life? Then, <laughs> despite great difficulty, he has a yes face. My friends, the reason why is because it's, our faces reflect our hearts. And, and if our heart is, is not welcoming to other people, other people are going to see that written all over our face, isn't it? Aren't they? That's just fundamental. So look back at that passage where I quoted earlier about Jesus welcoming people and eating with them. Now, this says here, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So think with me for a moment. What kind of face would these religious leaders have? 
They had a no face, right? They probably looked like they had been sucking lemons or something and they were just mad. Jesus is welcoming all the wrong kinds of people. What kind of face do you think Jesus had? If he's welcoming all kinds of people, including the misfits, the, the outcasts, and the losers, and, and everyone else that was, the, all the kinds of people that everyone else was unfriending, what kind of face do you think Jesus had that drew these people to him? It wasn't a no face. It couldn't have been a no face. They knew what no faces looked like. The religious leaders of the day had no faces all over the place, in spades. Jesus had a different kind of face. I came across this quote from Mother Teresa, and she said, every time you smile, it is an act of love, a gift to that person, a beautiful thing. Isn't that an amazing quote? Every time you smile, it is an act of love. If Jesus is at work making us loving people, then I want to propose to you, my friends, that we should smile more often. Now, I'm not calling for kind of a Pollyanna, uh, ignore the pain of this world kind of thing. But if you've experienced the welcome of Jesus in your own life, how is that radiating across your face, or is it? And so the question is, are you a welcoming person? And if you don't know, let me encourage you to try an experiment this week. Ask some different people what your face communicates. Ask other people if they experience you as a warm, welcoming person. Now, I know, let me just say, I'm an introvert. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> I'm an introvert. My job requires me to be an extrovert. And so I know for some of us, it's easier, and for some of us, it's more difficult. But Jesus has come to, to rescue us introverts as well. And to so cause his gospel of grace to, to transform our lives that it begins to be seen on our face as well. So are you a welcoming person? And I want to ask a question of us who come here to Mercy Hill Church and call Mercy Hill Church our, our home church. The question, are we a welcoming church? And I just want to ask this question because every single church thinks that they're a welcoming church. If you were to ask the people who are in the inside, who know people, they would say, yes, of course. I go there and I see my friend Kenny and I see Georgia and I, I just, you know, I feel welcome here. But how do other people experience us? That's, that's a good question. And as I mentioned earlier, we have these connection cards where I send first-time guests um, a little survey, getting feedback. And I love it, my friends, when... When I get feedback, when it says, what was one of the most encouraging things about your experience with us? And they say, your church was very welcoming. I felt like you guys wanted me around. I'm like, yes, we did it. But my friends, I get feedback sometimes from other people who say, I like certain things about the service, but I felt like I was invisible. And I'm like, oh. That, that just breaks my heart. And I, and I know many of us on Sunday mornings are, are hard at work trying to make sure people are welcoming. Sometimes it, folks just fall through the cracks. But, but I don't want anyone to come here. I don't want anyone to come around a community of, of faith that forms around Jesus, who extends to us his gracious welcome. And they don't, at least in some way, experience the gracious welcome of Jesus through us. 
And so what if we, what if we turn this into a competition? I don't know if you noticed that verse when I read it earlier, but in Earlier in this book of Romans, Paul says this. Love one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. He's like, all right, let's make this a competition. (laughs) And this is the the kind of competition you can be selfish at winning, all right? (laughs) That's weird to put it that way. But what what if this community of faith has so experienced the depth of the transformation of the gospel of Jesus that we just outdid one another in welcoming one another and in, in honoring one another? or honoring one another in the way we welcome one another? What would that look like? How would, how would the aroma of our Sunday mornings together change if that was the case? What would it look like for you if on the way out the door we awarded you first place for your ability on any given Sunday morning to welcome one another, to honor one another, to love one another, my friends, I, I know that some of you do this well, and you hear something like this, and you just feel guilty, and I don't want you to feel guilty at all. Let me encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. But, but what if we started seeing Sunday mornings, not just as a place where we come and punch the card, do our worship thing and leave, but what if we saw this as a, a place where we can actually put into practice extending the welcome of Jesus to one another? What if we actually took seriously this command to welcome one another? All right, number two. Let's aim for true community and not a club. There's this great quote by an author named Philip Yancey. And he says this, and I found it very challenging. We often surround ourselves with the people we most want to live with, thus forming a club or a clique, not a community. Anyone can form a club. It takes grace, shared vision, and hard work to form a community. (laughs) It takes grace. God's grace has to be at work within us. It takes a shared vision for all of us to say, yes, we want this place to be an experience of God's welcome to us in the way that we welcome one another. And yes, it takes hard work. That's why Paul says, I want to pray that the God of endurance and encouragement would grant that you live with one another in such harmony, that together with one voice, the way you are with one another, that what you say about Jesus is actually reflected in your life with one another. And so I came across this other quote that just asked the, convic- the convicting question. Are our, are our schedules too full to fit in some fellowship that is more than skin deep? Ouch. And I know some of you have schedules that are really full and, and you do get together with people and you love well. Don't feel guilty. But for those of us who find that to be a little bit more challenging, are we just getting task mode? Let me ask you the question. Are you making room in your calendars to welcome one another? Here's the third and final point of application. Let's get started on this today. Jesus intends for us to put into practice his new way of being human in which we welcome one another. Now, he he intends for us to follow him in this new way of being human beginning now. If we've experienced the welcome of Jesus, then we should be extending that welcome of Jesus to one another. So my friends, I got a big confession and a small request to make. Here's my big confession. On Sunday mornings, I am way too much in task mode. I seem to be more preoccupied with with trying to get things done than than to be with people. And let me just say, if you've experienced me that way, I I want to apologize to you. Uh, Last Sunday morning, um, Tyler came up here early to to help set up, and um, I didn't tell Tyler I was going to 
This doesn't make you look bad or anything, brothers. <laughs> so I, I, I came up here and I saw Tyler um, had parked over here because sometimes the hotel puts us on this side. Sometimes it puts us on that side. He had parked over there. So I drove over there and I rolled down my window. And I said, hey, we're on the other side. He's like, oh, okay. And so I rolled up my window and pulled away and parked on this side to, to get ready to unload stuff. And I think God's spirit just convicted me in a moment and just said, you schmuck. <laughs> you're, you're treating people like objects of productivity and not, a, not as people. And so I got out of my vehicle and, and Tyler met me around this corner over here and I just went up to Tyler and I said, Tyler, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't even say good morning to you or how are you doing? I just, I'm in task mode and, and that's not a good thing. And so Tyler being kind and gracious as he is uh, forgave me for that. But, but I as your pastor, I'm oftentimes in task mode. I'm, I'm more concerned with getting things done and making sure everything's out, everything's just set up just right, because I want people to have a good experience. And I'm, I'm missing the big picture here. I'm missing the fact that we are, we're called to extend the very welcome of Christ. And so that's my, my big confession on this issue. And so I want to apologize for maybe setting that tone for this congregation. And so here's my, my small request. What if, what if we stop seeing Sunday mornings as a place where we come together and we just get things done? We do our thing and then we leave. And, and instead start seeing this place as a place where we put into practice Jesus' new way of being human in a very tangible way where we just welcome one another. In prepping for this message, I, I asked myself the question, what do we need to change as a church and, and how do I need to change? And I think God's kind of shown me a little bit how I need to change. But, but here's my request. Could we use the first 10 minutes after our service? Not to rush to get things done, but to rush to welcome one another. And I'm speaking specifically to my friends who oftentimes serve on ministry teams, and we have a lot of things to get things done on a Sunday morning. But what if instead of rushing to do that, we, we rush to welcome one another? What if we set that kind of tone here? Now, I know some, sometimes... We do have to leave because we've got a meeting or, you know, whatever. And, and so, of course, I mean, that, that's, that's great. But what if, what if we said, you know what? I am convinced that part of the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his welcome of me is that I should be welcoming other people. And so what if, my friends, we use the first 10 minutes after a service to not get things done, but simply to welcome one another? Would that be too much to ask? Wouldn't that be a great way of putting into practice God's will for our life? What if after the service, we greeted one another with smiles, with hugs, or if you're not a hugging person, with, with a handshake? What if, what if what we wanted to do afterwards is to say, Aaron's already putting into practice. What if, what if we use the time right after the service to greet one another, and maybe especially each other that we don't know very well. Would that be too much to ask? Wouldn't that be a great way to put into practice, in a very tangible way, the new way of being human that Jesus invites us to inhabit? The Bible calls us in multiple places to greet one another. These are written to communities of faith where people come together, have no natural things in common, whose lives in many ways are so divided and defined by this world, 
that when they come together, they inhabit a new way of being human. And so we're called simply to greet one another. You want to know what God's will for us is? What if we just greeted one another? Wouldn't that set a different kind of tone in a world whose tone wounds us in a thousand ways? My friends, this is simply the first steps in following Jesus. This is something that we need to master. Welcoming one another and greeting one another is basic to following Jesus. And so my friends, I spent so many years of my life thinking that, that what Christianity was about was just me going to church on a Sunday morning and showing up, punching my card, being a good person, leaving, going do my thing. What Christianity is really about is living our faith out with one another. And so my friends, maybe, just maybe, in a world that wounds us in a thousand ways, maybe we could practice a different way of being human as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus and put into practice a way of welcoming one another that actually brings healing in a thousand ways. Wouldn't that be amazing? So Mercy Hill Church, may you welcome one another just as Christ welcomed you.